Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Welcome to the very first edition of a brand new podcast, Voices of UMass Med. We are really excited to introduce you in the coming weeks and months to some of our incredible faculty and leaders. In Voices of UMass Med, we will have lively, informative conversations to highlight the people, the research, the education at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And to start, we went straight to the top. Chancellor Michael F. Collins is the CEO of the University of Massachusetts Medical School and everything that entails. We have three graduate schools training MDs, PhDs, and advanced practice nurses, Nobel Prize winning, cutting edge biomedical research, unique business units, and what unifies all of it is a singular focus on public service. So Chancellor Collins, thank you for agreeing to be the inaugural guest. Well, it's a privilege. <laughs> Always good to uh, have the chance to talk about our fantastic medical school. There is just one, one choice for us. So as we sit here having this conversation, the medical school is welcoming a new class, a new academic year is just about to get underway. As a physician yourself, I wonder what thoughts and emotions does the start of a new year bring forth for you? You know, it's hard for any one of us uh, who's uh, had the privilege to go to medical school to forget that first day. and. For me, it's, uh, I have to admit, I'm always a little bit nervous to, I get the chance really? to give the first lecture and I'm always a little bit nervous. I remember that first day. Uh, for me, it was at Tufts Medical School in the Patton B Auditorium, sitting towards the back of the room. So I always do look at the back to see who sits there and, uh, and uh, think with great anticipation of what it meant. Finally, the dream coming true of, true of having to get the chance to go to medical school. There was these, uh, um, this very small um, uh, writing on the board said page 78 to 83, and I thought, geez, before the first day of class, they could have washed the board, you know. And <laughs> so the deans and everyone, just like I do, get up and give the first talk, and then when it's all over, the anatomy professor walks out and says, hello, I'm Jim Moorhead, I'm the head of anatomy. Before, read those pages. before <laughs> tomorrow, I'd like you to read pages 78 <laughs> to 83. We were going to dissect the anterior thigh, and that was the next morning. And so uh, as you now are the person standing in front of the auditorium, and you're looking out at all those faces, what is it that's going through your mind? Well, first, I think about how competitive a class that, uh, that I'm going to be speaking to. Uh, we're so fortunate now that uh, the number of applications uh, for our institution are, uh, you know, has grown greatly. Um, and the quality of the applicants is uh, even more impressive. Um, for the class we'll admit um, this year, we'll have around 1,200 applications from Massachusetts for you know roughly 120 seats, and for the 40 or so out-of-state students, we'll have close to 3,500 um, applications. And so, essentially, the admissions committee has a chance to uh, you know pick whoever they want, and and the. The accomplishments, the uh, the grade point average, the testing results, and we also have this phrase called miles traveled. What students have done before they come to medical school? There are very few students that sort of come straight from college, which was the norm, you know, when I when I started to go to medical school in 1977. Um, so, what now, are some of those things that would make? Well, a student so it can it can and vary, you know. So, I think that some students, you know, work in research labs or. They're scribes at a, at a hospital or for a physician's practice. And other students do really fantastic things. They, they uh, go to 
you know, uh, countries where English is not the first language, so they might go to China or to some place in Central or South America. One laptop for a child. We have Olympic athletes. We have musicians. Who we have one student who was the, the you know, the the pianist for a symphony orchestra, and they really have these amazing accomplishments. They they really have had incredible miles traveled. And so when I stand there and I look at them and I say, "Wow, here you are. It's your chance now to." fulfill your dream to be a physician, and uh, I have to admit, I get quite excited to, to speak to them about uh, coming to medical school. When did you know that you wanted to be a physician? You know, I, I sort of relate it back to, uh, um, you know, I was, I was a rather sickly child. I don't really know what I had, but I was in the hospital a lot, and, uh, and uh, you know, there were no length of, stay length of stay restrictions in those days. You could, you could pretty much, so I was in the Norwood Hospital, and Dennis Collins, Dr. Collins, who was my father's cousin, was our doctor. And when I would be in the hospital, uh, I would hear the overhead speaker go off. Oh, there were no beepers in those days. Huh? And uh, so over the loudspeaker I'd hear, Dr. Collins, Dr. Dennis Collins, Dr. Collins, Dr. Collins. <laughs> and I have to admit that I, I thought right then and there, boy, could I be a Dr. Collins one day? And uh, that's sort of my first recollection. My second was a second grade project that I worked on. It's actually, um, it's going to sound trite, but it's actually had a profound effect on my career. I was in love with my second grade teacher, Miss mm. Kerr. Do you remember her name? I Ms. do, Miss Kerr. Kerr. <laughs> and she was going to get married. She became Mrs. Lind. And I actually went to the wedding. It was in the Congregational Church in South Walpole. And I sat in the balcony as she walked down the aisle. I guess I had a crush on my second grade teacher. <laughs> And I think she liked me too. I got the penmanship award, so she, <laughs> she, um, she invited me to s sit in the balcony at her yeah. wedding, and I did a project um, uh, for her. Um, I was eight at the time, and I did a project uh, on the hand. It was an article about a, a rheumatic, a, a patient who had rheumatoid arthritis, and had very distorted hands. And uh, she was cared for by an orthopedic surgeon who actually released all the contractions in her hands. So that her, her hands, who had been very contracted, now were open. And I did a paper on that. I can still see the silver writing. I can still see the pictures. And recently we've done some research. We've actually gone back and found it. Really? And, um, and the hand has more or less become a metaphor for... Um, uh, for my, my career as a physician. And I relate sort of those two, hearing Dr. Collins and doing this paper for Mrs. Lind on the hand, to uh, the early days in the anatomy lab, where you know you walk into the anatomy lab, you're really walking into a sacred place. And um, there lies your first, and I think many physicians would say, best teacher. And the chance to hold uh, your donor's hand um, sort of reflects, you know, it, everything sort of comes flashing to that moment. And for me, there was the covenant that um, I would have the opportunity to um, learn from and then uh, care for others. You know, and I was holding my cadaver's hand, I was thinking that. And then there was sort of this epiphany that, um, you know, one day the hands that would actually be curing patients would be mine. and. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of a, that's that. It's very symbolic to yeah, you. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And, and uh, 
no matter how many times you walk into a patient's room or see them in a, in a clinic or, um, God forbid, in the anatomy lab, um, and you hold their hand, you realize how special it is to be a physician. So on that note, um, I'm struck by the pace of discovery today. Hardly a day goes by where there's not a new technology or a new technique, or particularly in science and medicine, I think. And so in that context, do you worry about students sort of losing the humanity in medicine? And, and I guess what does that mean to you and why does it matter? Well, I'd say two things about that. So first, um, all of us who are physicians learn early on that by being a doctor, you're really committed to a process of lifelong learning. Um, I tell our students in that first day lecture that, uh, you know, HIV wasn't even discovered before I graduated from medical school. In fact, it was a week or two after graduation that I read the first paper on uh, 10 men who were immunocompromised and had a rare pneumonia in San Francisco. And so if you stop your learning at uh, in medical school, then you're not going to be a very good doctor. Um, with respect to your question about humanity, however, um, I over each of each, I have a lot of desks, huh? So I have a desk at the medical school, and a desk at the president's office in Boston, and a desk at home. And over that desk is a, a painting of Sir Luke Fides, um, painted on the doctor, and on the on the bed in that room is a child who has tuberculosis. And, um, and there really is nothing else in that painting except the doctor, the young pediatric patient, and the two parents who are grieving in the back. The child actually dies shortly after the painting is done. And I have that painting there, and particularly when students come for, for uh, lunch, I have that painting there because I want to encourage our students to recognize that the most important gift that they will bring to our profession is their own humanity. And if they see the human dignity in every patient with, with whom they interact, they will be wildly successful as doctors. Because in that painting, there's no MRI machine, there's no CAT scan, there's no antibiotics then, there's no anti-TB drugs, there's only the relationship between the doctor, the, the child patient, and their parents. And I think that's what struck um, the painter when he, when he captured that moment. Um, and for me, that's the, the essence of what we are all about. Now, um, you know, there comes a time often in, when you're caring for a patient when there really is nothing more to do. When all the scans have been done and, and all the drugs have been administered, but, you know, the patient is coming close to the end of their life. And the ability to sit on the side of the bed or to embrace the patient um, with your hands in their hands is really quite profound. And, uh, you know, I think in medicine we've sort of lost a little bit of that touch, if you will. Um, it's been many hands I've had the privilege to hold over a lifetime. And, uh, and I think that uh, our best clinicians, our best physicians, are those who sort of learn that skill early on. Is there such a thing as a typical day for a university chancellor? Can you pull back the curtain a little bit on what your, uh, no. what this role is like? No such thing as a typical day. Um, you know, essentially we're running a billion dollar business here. Um, don't like to put it in those terms, but that's what it is. We have, you know, we're at a very unusual medical school and that 
we have a medical school and a nursing school and a grad school with around, you know, just a little more than a thousand students here, about 650 or so in the med school and a couple hundred in the nursing school and 400 or so in the grad school. We also have, you know, a very large research enterprise approaching 300 millions now in revenues and expense. We have a very large consulting company with 1,200 people that, you know, help us to look after, uh, help governments to assure that dollars caring for public patient populations are well applied. And we have a large biomanufacturing company. And in addition to that, I also have the sort of life science portfolio for the whole university in my university responsibility. Um, when I became chancellor a few years ago, um, I thought, well, okay, this will be great because now I'll be able to control my schedule. And so what a chancellor does is essentially what everybody else is, thinks is important um, throughout the course of that day. So while I may have a schedule, if some big thing happens, then the whole schedule gets, you know, gets put out the window and we deal with what we have to deal with. Um, I have a lot of, you know, of, you know, the typical large number of direct reports, but for me a typical day would be, you know, some administrative meetings. I love to interact with the students and I invite all of the first years to, uh, to come to lunch and that's, that's always a highlight of the day. I spend a tremendous amount of time mentoring, helping our students and those who want to come into the profession to think about how they might, um, you know, how, how they might improve their application. Uh, and then for our students, there's various levels of, of mentoring that occurs. If you go backwards from the fourth year students, they're starting to think about where they might want to do their residency. The third year students are trying to think about what specialty they want to be. The second year students are in a panic about taking the step one exam. The first year students are overwhelmed by how much material there is. and. Um, and I try to be very present to the students. I don't. Um, I, I recognize that sometimes the title and the position, you know, sets up boundaries where people say, "Oh, there's the chancellor." But I really try to demystify a lot of that, and the students know that they have ready access to to my door. I'm not official anything. I'm not a an official mentor in the learning community. I'm not an official advisor in a specialty, but the students do know that they um, they can come. So I spend a fair bit of time with students, and then. Um, you know, the, the one thing I have learned about the chancellor's office, however, is there's nothing easy there, right? Because <laughs> if it were easy, it wouldn't be in my office right. because we have a lot of talented people working with us and they can resolve those All issues. The easy decisions have right, they're made. long made before they come there. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of hiring decisions that have to be made and, and I assist the folks who report to me with, you know, the kind of business challenges they have. So given all those challenges, what is it that excites you about walking in the door every morning? Well, first of all, I will tell you, the thing that excites me the most is the chance that this paperboy from Walpole gets to walk into that office. I'll tell you that. That is, And there's no day that goes by when I walk in there, I go, wow, can this really be even true? Even, even in starting my 12th year, I still feel that way. Um, I think the, you know, it, it's incredible to be from Massachusetts and to have seen what has become of this medical school. It's incredible for me to think that I get the chance to, to lead it. And, you know, I think there is a certain amount of humility that you need to do these jobs. And so I say, you know, but for the will of God, I mean, why am I, why do I get this chance? Mm -hmm. And honestly, we're having a good run. Huh? It's been really spectacular. If you look, we've had the chance to build two buildings since I've been here. You look at the quality of the faculty we've been able to recruit and nourish. You look at the the competency now of the, of the student body. You look at the position the school has within, within the Commonwealth. Um, you look at the amount of research. You look at the, 
the renown we have across the globe. I mean, in many ways, we're better known outside of Massachusetts. When I go to China, it's a big deal that the chancellor of UMass Medical School is here. It's a big deal. And I think the, the, the science is, you know, it's really pretty special. We have, a, we have a scientist we recruited from Europe who, who actually visited with a Nobel laureate while he was making his decision to come here. And uh, the Nobel, he has a great slide that he shows where the Nobel laureate who's he's, who he's consulting says that maybe in Massachusetts people won't understand why you went there, but in the science world, in the science world around the globe, everybody will know why you went to science UMass. Science speaks for itself. It yes. does, it speaks for itself. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. You did mention that you have a university-wide role. You are the Senior Vice President for the Health Sciences for the entire University of Massachusetts system. And so I want to ask you about the Life Sciences Bond Bill. Earlier this summer, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker renewed that Life Sciences 2.0 that will devote, I think, a half a billion dollars to the life sciences industry just within the Commonwealth. So in your mind, what is the message Governor Baker sends by making that commitment? Well, I think he, um, to his credit, recognizes the importance of the life science industry to the Commonwealth. And, um, and I know there had been some conversations earlier on about whether you should pick winners and losers as an industry, but I think if you look at the Massachusetts competitive position now in the life sciences, we really have the opportunity to lead the world, not just the nation. We have the opportunity to lead the world. And if you look at what's been developed in Worcester, what's been developed in Kendall Square, what's being developed around the, the medical schools and teaching hospitals within the Commonwealth, I think the governor fully appreciates the importance of investments in the life sciences. Now, here's the fact. We are the leader in the life sciences in the world and everybody wants to be us. So we either continue the investments that we've been making, continue to build upon those, or we lose our lead position. It's as simple as that. Now for me in the university, I look at and I say if the state is going to invest money in the life sciences, why wouldn't the state want to invest some of that money in the University of Massachusetts? And that was my feeling with Life Science 1.0 and, and I've been making the case again in Life Science 2.0, which is now going to have, we, the bill has been passed and has $150 million of capital monies in there for the, for the university and some very interesting proposals. So in Amherst, the opportunity to, to uh, enhance their commitment to STEM teaching because, you know, we, UMass Amherst um, educates the students who are going to stay in Massachusetts. About 85% of their students are, are staying in Massachusetts. In fact, if you take all of the Massachusetts students who go to the, all of the elite public, uh, all the elite private universities in Massachusetts. There are more Massachusetts at UMass Amherst than all of those other eight largest institutions added together. And so if you want a vibrant life science industry in Massachusetts, we better have STEM teachers coming out of UMass Amherst. If you look at um, the proposal in Boston, it's to enhance their nursing program at Dartmouth to be involved in biomanufacturing. In Lowell, we're actually partnering in the medical school to look at a neuroscience initiative. We have data-driven uh, data initiatives that are in there and, uh, and some biomanufacturing commitments. I think the governor recognizes the importance of um, uh, maintaining our leadership position 
and the legislature work together with the administration now to provide these dollars. I think it will make an enormous impact into the future. Um, over the past couple of years, uh, our country has experienced some very public fights over immigration and of course some of these continue. All you have to do is turn on the news any day. And you have spoken out quite strongly in a series of opinion pieces. Uh, and so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, like how do those immigration issues that we see unfolding on the nightly news impact a place like a medical school? Well, one of the things I, I learned early on when I got to, to uh, the medical school was that ours is a global talent pool. And, um, uh, and the folks who make up the medical school come from all across the globe because we're recruiting the best minds the best minds in science, the best minds in nursing, the best in the minds in medicine. And when you have the privilege to leave an institution as complex as ours with talent from across the globe, um, these issues touch um, those that you have the privilege to lead on, a, on an immediate basis. I, ha I had a lunch with junior faculty who were impacted by immigration and one student's, one, one postdoc's father was dying and he was afraid to go home because wasn't sure he'd be able to get back into the country. We had a, a, a couple, both working here, who had a new baby, afraid to take the baby home to meet their grandparents because they might, they, their immigration could be an issue. They have all the proper papers in place and all that, but they just were concerned given the the, the mindset. We have people who are being recruited to come to the medical school who are from the seven countries on the list, who are stuck in those home countries right now and, and aren't able to come here. And if you look at the responsibility that we have to create the finest science that exists anywhere on the planet and to have there be an artificial limitation on the minds who can actually promote that science seems to me to be wrong. And then when I look at children lying on rubber mats on cold concrete floors in what looks like a warehouse or a, or a pen of some sort, and we're here educating students to be caring for children, I say there's just some big disconnect there. And, um, and I feel that, you know, in America, you know, we've been told you see something, you say something. To me, this is wrong. And so I felt I needed to say, this is wrong. We, we when, you, when you become a professional in the health uh, area, you realize that just about every action that you do is to promote the human dignity of another. I think some of the positions that have been taken with respect to immigration really has forgotten some of that human dignity. And I feel someone needs to say something about it. Did you feel like you were taking a risk by doing so? Well, you know, uh, I know most people think I could be a politician. I'm really not interested in that whatsoever. Um, and some people have given me some pretty big pushback. I had, I gave a talk, one, one, in one of my talks, I talked about the wall. And I said, no wall, no wall should prevent a fine mind from coming to our campus. And I said, within the borders of our campus, we will be safe for all who are here. And a guy came up to me after and really let me have it, thinking that, you know, I said, didn't come to listen to my political speak. And I said, well, you might as well get used to it. Because if we're not going to speak up on these issues, I think part of the problem with university leaders these days is we kind of lost, you know, it used to be the university leaders are the ones whose voices were out there and being heard. So, sure, I'm, uh, I'm often reluctant to kind of wade into something that 
some people would seem to be political. For me, this was a, this was a human dignity issue. This was a humanity issue. I see children on the floors and I see immigrants crying and I just can't imagine what it would have been like when my grandparents were coming from Ireland or Italy if they got a reception like some of these folks are getting. And I figure somebody needs to say something about that. So I think every successful person has certain principles that they live by that have served them well that you refer to when you have to make a tough decision or something like that. And so I'd like to close by asking you personally if there are particular words of wisdom that you received from your mother or father that um, have been helpful to you throughout your career. Well, most people who have worked with me will be able to answer that question for you. So on my desk, you know the buck stops here, which was on Harry Truman's desk, yeah. On my desk it says, first you have to want to, then you can. And those were the words of my mother. And, and how would she um, use them? Well, she would say, you know, no, look at The truth is I was never going to be a major league baseball pitcher, okay? But when I first made the statement that I wanted to be a doctor, my mother said, look at First you have to want to, and if you want to, then you can. And there was that, you know, that commitment, you know, that what she was telling me was if you work hard, you'll be able to realize your objective. And everybody else may be going to have a lot of fun and do other things, but, you know, maybe you better get your homework done, and maybe you better do well on the test. And that was kind of the message. And I encourage, you know, I have that sitting on my desk now, so students who come in who are, you know, maybe challenged by certain things or, or folks who come in that want to go to medicine or be a nurse, I have them look at it, and I say, look at it, if you really want to do it, you can do it. And um, um, so that's, that's been really important to me, and I, I think I, I like to transmit that. My father was a very decent guy, and, uh, and uh, he took each person sort of from where they came. And, uh, you know, my parents owned a little store in, in Walpole, the, the, our hometown, and uh, and they were there for people when people needed them. And, and, uh, and I just sort of can always remember that. And uh, so I always say I have my father's personality and my mother's intellect. And um, uh, my father was, he was a guy, big guy and people loved to be around him. And I try to, uh, you know, I try in, in each, you know, when you're a chancellor, you know, a lot of people want to talk to you. And sort of say, I'm trying to focus on the person I'm with at that time. I really try to to do that and not always be wondering about sort of who the next person is going to be. And with our students, particularly those who want to be clinicians and things, I'm, I'm working hard to help them to realize their dreams. And I can tell you, it's probably wrong, but I have such a, a paternalistic feeling on match day when our students actually open those envelopes and they get the postings that they want. Boy, I'll tell you, I'm just as proud as a peacock on those days. And I'm, and I'm moved to tears that, that students who have made this enormous commitment now have the opportunity to, uh, to uh, do this. You know, my dad died of a brain tumor when I was a sophomore in college. And I think a lot of my own, um, a lot of my own construct as a physician uh, came from the conversations we had on the front step. You know, we knew, you know, we had a year um, to prepare for his death because we knew that, you know, his, his was a terminal illness. And we used to sit on the front step and and he would just impart, you know, certain basic wisdoms. Like, you know, you really got to be nice to people and you got to really, you know, it's not always about you. It should really be about other people. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's okay to say I love you. And it's okay to, you know, hold somebody. And, and those are, you know, sort of basic things that I learned at that time just from sitting on the front step. Someday I'm going to write a book about my conversations with my father on the front step be because, yeah, yeah, it was really yeah, pretty special.
You know, let me just end by saying that, uh, you know, from the very beginning in medicine, I sort of committed to helping others um, who wanted to be doctors. And um, the first student that I had the privilege to mentor was a, was a young man whose mother had, um, whose father had left the family and was a little boy and whose mother died um, at 41 of a heart attack. And the kid was hurting. And uh, I got a phone call about him. And I talked to a person came in and spent a night with me in the emergency room when I was an intern. And I talked to him almost every day for a year. And then helped him to get into medical school and, and helped him to, uh, you know, to get a great residency and then a fellowship. And today he's chair of medicine at Stanford. How about that? Bob Harrington. And, uh, and uh, there have now been hundreds of those young people who have come into my life. And mentoring is a gift both given and received. And uh, trust me, I get way more out of mentoring than the people who I have the privilege to mentor. And uh, what's extraordinary about that story is the exact same story walked into my office six years ago. Hmm. The exact same story. A wow. young man whose father had left the family and a little boy. His mother died of a cancer when he was a, when he was a high school senior. And, uh, and he graduated from our medical school this past year and is doing one of the most competitive residencies in the country. And every step of the way, the chance to uh, to be a side by side that student as they realize their dreams is really it's really pretty spectacular. You know, a lot of medicine is delayed gratification. You know, we have to work hard. We have to study hard. We take a lot of tests. But I can't imagine a more satisfying end of the day. You know, sometimes when I put my head on the pillow at night, I think about all the things that went on during the day. For me, the most important thing has either been to hold the hand of a patient or to, you know, put my arms around someone who really needs a little, a really little bit of help as they try to realize their, their life's dreams. And uh, when you have those, when you, when you can do those things in the course of a day, boy, it's pretty fulfilling. Thank you so much for a terrific conversation. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to listening to these podcasts. I know they're going to be pretty special because there's a lot of a lot of folks at our medical school have some many interesting things to say, and I hope those who are listening to this will tune in on a regular basis to, uh, to learn more about our school. Thank, Thank you. you, Chancellor. Michael F. Collins is Chancellor of the University of Massachusetts Medical School and also serves as Senior Vice President for the Health Sciences for the entire University of Massachusetts system. You have been listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Find news and all of our podcasts at umassmed.edu news. And stay up to date by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at UMass Medical.